Hello again, everyone. Thank you for listening to another season of Uncommentary. This is episode 10 of season 3, 30 plus episodes in the bank already. And I'm really, really happy with how season 3 turned out. And I hope that you are too. Uh, Before I get to uh, our bio for Catherine Hayhoe, I wanted to ask you one more time if you would consider uh, making a a support gift. Uh, I guess it's not actually a donation. To help keep Uncommentary moving forward, uh, you can go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, or you can go to uh, patreon.com slash uncommentary if you would like to be a monthly sponsor for a monthly patron, I guess is the right word, for as little as two bucks a month. Uh, picked up two in the last couple of weeks and really excited about that. So here's the reality. Um Uncommentary isn't paying any bills at my house. Uh, I would love for it to get to the point where it paid bills in my house, uh, but that'd be that'd be okay. But I would like to take my wife out every now, now and then for uh, a dinner uh, because of all the times that she has to sit quietly while I'm up here recording. Uh, so if you can see your way clear, that'd be awesome. Uh, if not, that's awesome too. Uh, if you haven't yet rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, uh, when this episode is over, if you would do that, that would be awesome. Um, there'll be a couple more, a couple more special episodes between now and the end of the year. Uh, I have decided not to try to work a full season four in for this year. Uh, it'll launch out uh, beginning in January. So I hope that you'll uh, be around in the meantime, tell all your friends and neighbors and loved ones, uh, and people that you don't even like about uncommentary and encourage them to listen. And if necessary, show them how it's done. So my guest today on In Commentary is Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist, a professor in the Department of Political Science, a director of the Climate Center, and associate in the public health program of the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at Texas Tech University. She's also a principal investigator for the Department of Interior's South Central Climate Adaptation Science Center. Hayhoe's master's research focused on understanding human and natural sources of methane, and quantifying the contribution of methane and other non-CO2 greenhouse gases to emission reduction targets. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Uh, To date, her work has resulted in over 125 peer-reviewed papers, abstracts, and other publications, and key reports including the U.S. Global Change Research Program's Second National Climate Assessment, the U.S. National Academy of Science Report on Climate Stabilization Targets, and the 2014 Third National Climate Assessment. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you for having me. So um, you are probably like really, really well known in a certain segment of society. And I'm going to guess that you're practically unknown (laughs) in another segment of society because because your specialty is climate change. So um, introduce us to Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Sure. And, and by the way, I think you're 100% right on that. Um, I am a, yes, I'm a climate scientist. And what that means is I study what climate change means to us and the places where we live. So often when somebody says global warming, we think about the polar bear or maybe people mm-hmm. living on a low lying island in the South Pacific far away. But I actually look at why it matters to us right here where we are and what are sensible, practical things that we can do to fix it that are good for us, that help grow the economy, and most importantly for me personally, are consistent with our Christian values. So I want to I start with something you just brought up. 
What is the difference between the terminology global warming and climate change, and how did one kind of sort of give way to the other one? Mm -hmm. Well, um, people often claim, oh, you changed the name on it to try to trick us. Um, but that's not the case. Scientists have been talking about climate change since the 1850s. Yes, the 1850s. I was not there. Neither was I, but I can, I can read what they wrote back then, and their their studies are still available, many of them online. You can read them yourself. And that is how long we have known that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil produces heat-trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet that our planet was never designed to have and does not need. And so just like we would if we were sleeping at night and somebody snuck in and put an extra blanket on us that we didn't need and we woke up sweating, right. in, in the same way, we're wrapping this extra blanket around our planet and our planet is heating up as a result. So global warming refers to an increase in the average temperature of the planet. But the thing is, you and I, we don't notice a change in the average temperature of the entire planet. Right. We notice what's happening in the places where we live. So that's why um, we scientists call it climate change, because it isn't only changes in temperature. We are seeing what I would actually call global weirding. So we are seeing the fact that our heavy rainfall is getting more intense and more frequent. Um, our weather's just getting weirder. Our Summers are coming earlier. Our heat waves are getting stronger in the summer. Where I live in Texas, we see that hurricanes, which are a very normal part of life in the Gulf of Mexico, mm -hmm. our hurricanes are getting a lot bigger and a lot slower, and they're dumping a lot more rain on us. We're also seeing that sea level's rising. I was recently up in Alaska where the glaciers are melting so fast you can see it with your own eyes. Oh, wow. we're, we're starting to see the changes right in front of us, and it has a lot there's a lot more going on than just a simple increase in the average temperature of the planet. So I'm going to confess that um, I was a long time uh, skeptic and part of my skepticism uh, was one. I didn't really do a lot of study in it. I just saw uh, people that I didn't like claiming that the climate was changing. And so I disbelieved it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so basically if Al Gore says we have a problem, then we don't have a problem. That's kind of how I looked at it. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I remember back in, I guess it was the seventies where we were about to enter the next ice age. And, and so I had this memory, it wasn't a strong memory cause I was, I was just a teenager back then, but I, I remembered like, man, I remember them talking about, we're about to go into the next ice age and we're going to cool off and things are going to be like this. And now all of a sudden it's hot. So what in the world is going on? And so I was like, I was, I wasn't skeptical of climate change as much as I was just skeptical that science was getting, uh, doing a good job of predicting these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, what should I know about this business that was going on in the seventies that kind that relates to where we are today? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I would say that I hear that quite a bit. Probably I hear that argument about once a week. And there is a fantastic resource that is created by a fellow brother in Christ. His name is John Cook. John Cook. And he is. Yes, John Cook has created this fantastic website that answers every single common but what about question about climate change. That's amazing. Including that one. And I'll tell you the answer in a minute. <laughs> okay. But first of all, I want to tell you his website. His website is called Skeptical Science. And I love that name yeah. because, as he says, scientists should be skeptical. Yeah. And we are. We're always kicking the tires on everything. So if you go to Skeptical Science, they actually have a list of the most common arguments in order. And I think the um, during the 70s they were predicting an Ice Age argument is somewhere around number 13 on the list or something <laughs> like that. Um, and, and the response to it is this. 
first of all, um, during the 70s, there was one Newsweek article and a handful, maybe three or four scientific papers okay. talking about that an ice age might be coming. Mm -hmm. And the, the interesting thing is this. When you look at the orbital cycles that actually bring the ice ages, according to orbital cycles, we should be heading into another ice age sometime in the next thousand years or so. Okay. Why aren't we? It's because by digging up all that coal and gas and oil, we have gone way the heck the other way, oh. like orders of magnitude the other way. So it's as if you have a balance beam, and on one side of the, on, one, on one side of the balance, I should say, you have like a one pound weight. Mm -hmm. That's the orbital cycles, and then on the other side of it, you have a hundred pound weight. That's the human um, emissions of heat trapping gases, and so we have far outweighed um, the effect of natural cycles on our planet's climate. So what are um, what are what are some of the breadth of evidences? Um, one of the things that kind of started turning my thinking on it was. Uh, you know, I would see a biologist talking about how climate change was affecting this particular area of biology. Then I would see a geologist talking about it. Then I would see a climatologist talking about it. Then I would see mm -hmm. somebody digging up an ice core in Greenland talking about it. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If there's evidence across all of these spectrums of science, it can't just be somebody trying to manipulate it for financial gain or something like that. So what are some of the broader evidences besides just we can look and see that the temperature is hot in, in October? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, you, you, you talked earlier about how a lot of um, Christians might not know who I am. And the funny thing is, is a lot of Christians do know my husband. So my husband, Andrew Farley, is a very popular radio host on Sirius XM. He oh. hosts a call-in show at 7 Central on the Sirius XM family talk show every night. Maybe I should um, call him and dogging about inter dogging, dog him about <laughs> interviewing you from a podcast. <laughs> yeah, you totally should. Um, <laughs> He's written a ton of great books, The Naked Gospel, God Without Religion, um, and he's also a pastor of our local church. And when we first got married, he didn't think that climate change was real. Right. Um, and I never really had a conversation with somebody who felt that way, but he's a really smart person. He is also bivocational like you. He was a linguistics professor for many years. Nice. So we sat down and we talked this through. And for him, he said one of his major turning points was when he had to decide, is NASA who put men on the moon involved in a global worldwide cover-up to fake data going back centuries <laughs> or NASA possibly correct that the planet is warming. <laughs> so, so being an intelligent person, he went with B on that yes, one. Yes. But what I would say to you further is, um, so, people might say, well, I don't trust that thermometer data, you know? So I say, throw it out, throw out the thermometer data, throw out the satellites, throw out all of the scientific instruments we use. All we have to do is look at the evidence of God's creation. And we can see that trees are blooming earlier in the year. Here in West Texas, where I live, one of my colleagues had a peach tree in his backyard. And because he was a biologist, he wrote down the day that the peach tree flowered every year. <laughs> That's what we, we scientists do for fun. Um, but when he cut it down a couple of years ago, it was flowering two to three weeks earlier in the year on average than when he planted it 30 years ago. Wow. Um, we see new species moving forward. We see sea level rising and glaciers melting. We see things changing before our eyes. And so if we only look at God's creation for evidence of a warming planet, there are over 26 and a half thousand independent lines of evidence telling us that, yes, it is getting warmer. I remember recently, and I would say recently being within the last 10 years, 
they they dug that seed vault, uh, I think, up in the Arctic ice cap somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and so they wanted to store every kind of seed that would repopulate every kind of plant, especially the food type plants on planet Earth in case there was some kind of cataclysm. And within, I don't know, five years or so, it was already flooding or at least threatening to flood because the ice where they had dug the thing and buried it for safety was melting around mm-hmm. it and was in danger of spoiling all the seeds they'd put in there. Oh, yeah. that That's exactly, that's just one story of the hundreds that I hear every week. And again, why do we care about a changing climate? It's because of us humans. We are the ones who are at risk here because we've built our civilization. We've allocated our land and our water resources. We've grown our crops. We've built our cities during a time of a very, very stable climate. Mm. I mean, people talk about the medieval warm period. Well, that was a tiny blip on the radar only in Northeast Europe. At the exact same time, (laughs) Siberia was actually having the medieval cold period at the same time. (laughs) It was a blip on the radar compared to what we're experiencing now. And we have two thirds of the world's biggest cities within a few feet of sea level. We have um, the poorest people in the world who live off a dollar or two a day, um, experiencing stronger droughts, more intense storms, and losing their crops and having you know nothing they can do. It's estimated that since 1980, we've lost $5 billion worth of crops every year due to the impacts of a changing climate. And most of those is happening in countries where people don't have the resources we do. Wow. So we care about a changing climate, again, not because of the polar bears. We care about it because of us. Um, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the uh, activity that stirred up the Syrian refugee crisis beginning maybe six or seven years ago had to do with a longer than normal and more severe than normal drought uh, in their rural areas that drove a lot of their farmers into the uh, urban areas. And Mm -hmm. uh, after a while it became unstable and then it turned into civil war. I mean, obviously I'm skipping some steps here, but it all began Mm -hmm. with the climate uh, and that that's not just a, um, That's not just a leftist thing. It's a, hey, this is just recent history. And if you'll study it, you can see that this is exactly what happened, which was shocking to me because it seemed to be completely overlooked in the people that were in the refugee discussion. But this kind of goes to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. The single best description that I've heard of climate change is from the U.S. military. They call it a threat multiplier. Wow. And I think that's the perfect description because people always want to be black and white. They want to say, okay, did climate change cause the Syrian refugee crisis or did it have nothing to do with it? And the answer to both of those is no, because it's, it's always in the middle. So what you had in the case of Syria was you had, first of all, you actually had an influx of refugees from the Iraqi war. Mm -hmm. First of all, you had a very unstable and corrupt political system. Mm -hmm. You had civil and religious tensions. And then you had a drought on top of it, which scientists have showed was two to three times more likely as a result of a changing climate. And that drought, as you said, drove farmers into the city. More than a million farmers abandoned their land, went to the city. There was 90% unemployment in some places. People were selling water for more money than oil or gas at that point. And that contributed to and magnified the risk of the refugee crisis. So climate change is a threat multiplier. And The reason why I care about it is, you know, picture a camel that has a reasonable load on its back. You know, we sort of over here in North America, we're sort of like that camel. It has a few bales of straw and it can carry those bales. (laughs) And then along comes climate change and it plops another bale of straw on our back. And we're like, oh, that's a bit painful. That's a bit expensive. That's going to give us, you know, we have more effort to carry it. 
But you go over to Syria, where their camel is staggering along, overloaded, its knees already buckling under the weight of, you know, corruption and poverty and hunger and lack of development and everything they have over there. And along comes climate change and throws an extra bale on top of that camel. And that's what causes the knees to finally fold. This is Marty Dern, and you're listening to Uncommentary, my conversation with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist from Texas Tech. Is that right? That's right. And we'll be right back after this. I mentioned recently the series from Erdman's Publishing, The Library of Religious Biography. The series is edited by Mark Knoll, Heath Carter, and Catherine Jen alum. Um, it, it's about 30 books now of various biographies. They sent me two, uh, Damning Words, The Life and Religious Times of H.L. Mencken by D.G. Hart, uh, and A Christian and a Democrat, A Religious Biography of Franklin D. Roosevelt by John F. Wolverton and James D. Bratt forward by James Comey. Um, Other books in the series include A Life of Alexander Campbell, uh, The Miracle Lady on Catherine Kuhlman, uh, George Whitfield, The Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, uh, The First uh, American Evangelical, a bio of uh, Cotton Mather. Um, I encourage you to look it up. Just Google Urban's uh, and uh, Religious Biography series, and you'll be able to get to it. These are are great books, uh, most of them hardback, if not all of them right now. Uh, and I encourage you to check it out. This is the William B. Erdman's series, uh, The Library of Religious Biography. Uh, it's available on Amazon, too. But if you want to see all the ones in order, uh, go to Erdman's and check them out there. And you might find something that you like. Uh, so, Dr. Hayhoe, um, one of the things that grabbed my attention, and I don't even remember the conversation that I was in on Twitter where you and I crossed paths somehow. Maybe somebody tagged you in a question that I had. I'm not really sure. Um, but you brought up pretty quickly the moral implications. You've kind of alluded to that. Um, you know, this is important to us because we're humans. But you went a step further uh, in our original exchange, or at least what I was reading you say, um, that this is going to affect the poorest of the poor before it affects everyone else. Um, and I'm assuming that some of that has to do with drought, as we've already discussed, but some of it also has to do with rising sea levels, which I don't fully understand. Um, because it seems to me that it's being postulated that sea levels are higher in one area than another, which I don't get that at all. So maybe you can help me out. Um, yep. But 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 there is a moral implication. So as as a follower of Jesus, uh, a person who believes that every every human's created in the image of God and has inherent dignity and worth, that I can't just say, oh well, maybe those people on that island out there in the South Pacific, maybe their time is just up, and this is just how you know, God removes them from the planet, uh, and pardon, yes. pardon me, but you know, I have a banana split to finish up over here in my air conditioned house. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how do we need to look at this? Well, um, the interesting thing is I have this little series on YouTube called global weirding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it with our local PBS station, but I said to them, you know, I really want to do one episode on what does the Bible say about climate change? Because the Bible doesn't actually say anything about climate right. change. Those words are not the Bible. <laughs> But, but when we start to look at why we care about climate change and how it affects the poorest and most vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the people who don't have enough food to eat today, the Bible actually has a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. So here I am doing this PBS series, and they say, okay, you can do one on what the Bible says about climate change. And I do it, and you wouldn't believe it, Marty, but that is our most watched episode. Wow. I would believe it, actually. Well, I'm, I'm glad you would. I was actually surprised. <laughs> uh, and, and that is because 
poor are already being affected. So here's something really interesting. People might have heard of the fact that the Pope, Pope Francis, wrote this big thing called an encyclical back in uh, 2015, um, connecting the dots between Christian values, poverty, and climate change. But what a lot of people don't realize is that here in the U.S., the National Association of Evangelicals, which represents you know all of us mm-hmm. evangelicals around the U.S., in 2011, four years before, they wrote a report called Loving the Least of These, taking Jesus' words, mm-hmm. talking about the connection between poverty, vulnerability, and a changing climate. So we have known and understood that this, these people are most at risk, and we as Christians are the ones who are called to love and care for them. A new study that came out this past May by some of my colleagues at Stanford, they found that climate change has already increased the gap between the rich and the poor. It's not a future issue anymore. They found that um, the gap between the richest and the poorest countries in the world has already increased by 25% in terms of their GDP. And most of that is losses by poor countries who are already living on the edge. And when, when you hear people from those countries speak, and I've had the opportunity to visit some of them and to visit with others when they were in some visiting us here, when you hear them speak and you hear them tell their story, and especially when they're fellow believers and they say, where is the church? Mm-hmm. Where are our brothers and sisters? How can people who say that they read the same Bible as us and they believe the same God as us, how can they be shutting their ears and their eyes to our suffering? It breaks my heart. How much, um, what's the difference between uh, the contribution of the richest countries uh, to the factors that uh, cause climate change versus the contributions of the poorest countries to the factors that cause climate change? Oh, the difference is pretty much everything versus almost nothing. Yeah. So so um, climate changes in response to all of the emissions that build up in the atmosphere. And the U.S. alone is responsible for almost 30% of those emissions. Of the world's emissions? 30%. Wow. Now, China is certainly doing its best to catch up. Um, it's currently sitting at about 13% of cumulative emissions. And then India, um, do, you, do you know India right offhand? Um, India is only a few percent. Okay. Um, and Canada and the UK and Europe, they're all in the top 10 along with the US. Well, I mean, we do and- like to lead the way. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, But then you look at Bangladesh. I mean, they're like 0.000 something percent of the world's emissions, yet they're the ones who are bearing the brunt of the impacts. A third of the area that they use to grow rice could be underwater before end of century because sea level's rising for two reasons. So the first reason is one we don't often think of. It's the fact that warmer water takes up more space. Yeah. And over 90% of the extra heat that's being trapped by this blanket that we're wrapping around the earth is going into the oceans. So the oceans are heating up and they're taking up more space, but then sea level rise is accelerating. It's happening twice as fast now as it was just 25 years ago. And the reason for that is because of the land-based ice that's melting. The big ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, the mountain glaciers in Alaska and the Himalayas and Patagonia, That's the second reason why it's happening faster. And a lot of poor countries are at very serious risk because, you know, when 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 their homes get wiped out, they don't have insurance. They don't have the National Guard. They don't have a bank account with, you know, retirement savings they can use. They can't even afford to move right now because they don't even own the land that they, they they sit on. So sea level rise really is one of the biggest kind of creeping threats of a changing climate, although, of course, there are many. Does um. 
I was thinking about this the other day. Does doesn't the issue of uh, radiation and CO two and the warming of the oceans and the melting of the land based ice doesn't that create kind of a negative feedback loop where each of them then is the negative effect is multiplied because of what's happening with the other side of that? Am I thinking about that correctly? Yes. So what you're thinking about is the fact that when shiny white ice melts. Um, especially like it's doing in the Arctic, mm-hmm. and it exposes either dark ocean or dark land underneath. Well, dark surfaces absorb more of the yes, sun's heat. That's it. Yeah. Right? So it's like if you're outside with a white umbrella versus a dark umbrella, <laughs> the right. dark umbrella absorbs the sun's heat. When we first moved to Texas, we had a black Jetta. And well, that I was remember, a mistake. That was a big <laughs> mistake. We, we had lived in Indiana before that. I remember the first day I sat in that driver's seat with shorts on. I oh, burned my, word. my legs. Yeah. We wasted no time getting a light-colored reflective car. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's happening up in the Arctic. And so as the ice melts, we're actually absorbing more of the sun's energy, which is heating us up even further. And that's what you call a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you, I mean... Every time this comes up, and I, I watched a, a couple of minutes of your um, appearance on one of the morning shows that was earlier this year, and um, and you kind of alluded to this, that almost every time this comes up, the the question is, well, can we really do anything about it? Or if somebody says, well, how about that new Green Deal? Socialism! Um, yeah. as if there's, you know, as if there, the options are do nothing or spend $70 trillion retrofitting every building in the United States. And there's really no options in between. It's one or the other. So reject that one and do nothing. Um, what, what are practical things that can be done by me, by my kids, by my friends? What can I, as a, as a one, one part of a family can do? Well, that is a great question because so many people feel like I have to get on board with, you know, the most extreme liberal solutions if I'm going to acknowledge this as a problem. And we have to recognize, first of all, the thermometer is not Democrat or Republican. It's not going to give us a different answer (laughs) depending on how we vote. Um, We have to acknowledge, hey, look, God's creation is clear. Climate is changing. Humans truly are responsible. We have kicked the tires of solar cycles, volcanoes, natural cycles, ice ages. We have looked at everything else and they all have a perfect alibi. Hey, you forgot, and, you forgot cows passing gas. That's a big one. Well, I, I actually look at that one too. And, and cows <laughs> passing gas do actually contribute some. Um, and, and the impacts are serious. So we have to fix it, but how can we fix it? And so that's why as a scientist, I'm in favor of anything that works. And as a pragmatic human being, I know that we have to be able to agree on stuff. Mm -hmm. And some stuff is just too divisive to agree on. So what I do is I look into and I research what are some free market solutions to climate change. And it turns out that there's a former Republican congressman called Bob Inglis, who is also a fellow believer, I think not not uncoincidentally, (laughs) who has, um, he chairs an organization called Republic N, so E-N as Uh opposed to Uh A-N. And Bob does great work talking about free market conservative solutions to climate change. Um, There are libertarian solutions to climate change. There are bipartisan solutions. Most people don't even know that there have been four bills introduced to Congress in the last year, 2018, 2019, um, suggesting that we price carbon and distribute the dividends to people through their taxes. And that is a bipartisan. How does that work? Uh, I was reading that the other day, carbon offsets and all that, and I'm just thinking to myself, I don't even understand what any of that means. 
Well, I'm glad you asked because my husband actually asked me that just the other day too. He's See, like, I feel smarter what? already. You are. He said, what is carbon pricing? Does it mean that if we have a tax on carbon, I'm going to get a bill from the government for $13,000 <laughs> at the end of the year, and they're going to be like, we added up all the carbon you produce, and you're going to have to pay this. <laughs> and, and that doesn't sound very attractive. I mean, I personally do not want to sign up for that. <laughs> but, but I said, no, that's not the way carbon pricing works. So a lot of Bush-era Republicans like um, Jim Baker and George Shultz um, and every economist pretty much in the entire world, including the two who won the Nobel Prize for economics last year, they all endorse carbon pricing. And here's what it is. It turns out that we are subsidizing fossil fuels currently to the tune of more money than the Pentagon's annual budget every year. Oh, well, that's great. Yes. And because of that, we are paying out of our pocket to subsidize the richest corporations in the world, which I think is unnecessary. And many people yeah. who support a free market would agree with me on that. Um, you know, they are not charity cases. Um, they can stand on their own two feet. So putting a price on carbon means you go to all the companies that produce oil, gas and coal and you say, Here's how much you are subsidized in terms of the land that you use, the damage that you cause, the impact that you're having on our health. Here's the price that you, the company, has to pay the government for the carbon that you sell. But, and then you can do whatever you want with, with that cost. And what they will naturally do is they'll pass it on to the consumer. So mm -hmm. our gas prices would go up, you know, five, five cents or 10 cents um, a gallon. Um, but then what the government does is it takes that money and it gives it back to people in their taxes. Rebates would start, I think some are the numbers I saw were somewhere around $280 per household per month starting. Wow. And they would ratchet up to $1,000 a month. But we get that money no matter how we decide to use carbon or not. Mm. So in other words, if I replace my light bulbs with LEDs, which is one of the cheapest and easiest ways that we can reduce our carbon emissions, I would save a ton of money. In fact, you know what? LED light bulbs pay for themselves in three months now. In fact, if somebody gave you a free incandescent light bulb and you <laughs> and, and, and bought an LED for $1.50, the LED would be cheaper after three months. That is amazing. I mean, people don't realize this. That is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, I, I bought a plug-in car, um, and I plug it in and charge it overnight, and I do most of my trips around town on electricity that costs about a third the price of gas where I yeah. live in Texas. Yeah. So I can make those decisions, but under a carbon price, I would get the money back, and I would have even more money because people say, well, you know, even a used electric car might cost too much. Well, all of a sudden, I'd have a bit more money that I could possibly use to buy that, mm -hmm. and then I would save even more money. Right. So that's how carbon pricing works, and that's why a lot of conservatives, including over 70 Republican congressmen and women who endorse the bill that's currently before the House, that's why they support it, because it empowers the free market to help us um, maintain our freedom to make decisions. I mean, if you still want to drive a Hummer, drive a Hummer and God bless you. But if you, if you want to save money, you could actually save money through this. And we're also making long-term choices that benefit ourselves, our health, our families, our communities, and our jobs. Because in the U.S., for example, there is now more jobs in solar energy than in the coal industry. That's an, Okay, so that brings up something else that I wanted to ask you. Uh, I've been kicking this idea around in my head and didn't have anybody to ask, so congratulations. Mm -hmm. um, the issue of solar, which uh, in, in my absolutely unstudied and uh, unprofessional opinion is where the action mm -hmm. is, 
because at least in my lifetime and yours, the sun's not going to run down. So we've got a lot of sun <laughs> no. left and it's free energy that's just landing on the planet. Um, it seems to me that one of the arguments, the failure of one of the anti-solar arguments, let me say it that way, mm-hmm. is that it doesn't seem to take into account the advances that can be made in solar technology over time if enough money is invested into the industry. For instance, mm-hmm. I, I can foresee a time that your plug-in hybrid would not be plugged into your house. It would be plugged into a single solar panel on a post like a basketball goal that's at the end of your driveway that has a self-contained battery or whatever the apparatus would be. And -hmm. you would come plug in your car to your solar panel, technically not Mm -hmm. into your house. And so you're recharging your car for free. I can further see, and this might take a little bit longer, but I can further see that uh, window tinting in a Tesla, for instance, would be all solar panels. So obviously it would take a lot of different technology than what's existent today, but all the window tinting would be solar panels and it would consistently be pouring a charge into the battery. Maybe not a hundred percent, maybe not 50, maybe not even five, but some that would make the difference on a single charge of 250 miles to maybe 265 miles. And then over time mm-hmm. that would increase. Why do you think people don't think about what can happen technologically over the course of one or two decades uh, and so they reject it today because solar isn't up to fossil fuel as far as where we can get from A to B. Well, a lot of it, I think, is it's just newfangled. You know, we, we've yeah. been using coal and gas and oil for a really long time. And when, when the Model T Ford first came along, a lot of people were like, well, I got my horse in my buggy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know why you're promoting this new stuff here over here, Henry. Yeah. Um, but now, of course, we know that that's the way the world works. And the same with cell phones as opposed to, you know, old, old plug-in phones. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it is, um, we just don't know. And even with LEDs, a lot of us are like, well, you know, how do I know what wavelength to buy? I mean, they don't say 60 watts on the main (laughs) one. It's a learning hump to get over. And also nobody's ever told us clearly what the benefits are. I mean, did you, did you know, before I said this, that an LED plays for itself in three months compared to a free, incandescent bulb no i did not know that exactly i didn't know it was that fast yeah i know and the stuff is changing by leaps and bounds so we actually so my husband um who as i said when we first got married we're not on the same page on on climate science my husband actually got us as a surprise solar panels for christmas for the roof that's awesome i actually do plug in my car to my solar panels and i love not going to the gas station more than once a month i mean it is like one of my favorite things now um because you know the pumps are kind of dirty and they kind of smell and you have to clean your hands afterwards so i never have to hand sanitizer and you know um so so i i think that increasing our awareness is really really important so what i recommend to people is there's these things called carbon footprint calculators and so what you do is if you just google carbon footprint calculator and something will pop up and it, you put in, you know, where you live, how many people in your house, how far you drive, all that type of stuff, what you eat, how you dry your clothes, everything. And then it'll actually give you very concrete suggestions on what you can personally do to reduce your carbon footprint. And a really good one will actually tell you how you can save money, too, which is really that important. That's good. Because uh, we don't realize that we can save money by using a lot of this new technology. But here's the interesting thing. A lot of people will say, okay, but what's the most important thing I can do? I mean, is light bulbs the most important or is eating lower down the food chain the most important? Because factory produced meat actually does produce a lot of heat trapping Mm -hmm. gases. And my answer 
is what I said in my TED talk. I have a TED talk about this. I said, no, the most important thing we can do, I think, is talk about it. Because it turns out when you ask people in the United States, do you think the planet is warming? Most people, over 70%, say yes. Do you think it affects future generations? People say yes. Do you think it affects people in poor countries? People say yes. Plants and animals, yes. But then you say, do you think it affects you personally? Pretty much everybody, even in like the liberal ends of the country, everybody says no. And then you say, do you ever talk about it? And uniformly across the country, people say no. They don't talk about it. And here, connecting the dots, if we don't talk about it, why would we ever care? Why would we understand how it's affecting us in the places where we live? And if we don't understand why it matters, why would we ever want to do anything about it? So in, in our Global Weirding series on YouTube, I made one episode, and they're super short episodes. They're only like five or six minutes long. I made one episode for every region of the U.S. And for each region, I go through how climate change is already affecting us in the places where we live. I provide concrete examples of things you can see with your eyes that when when I talk about them, you'll be like, oh, so that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I really connect the dots between our water, our health, our food, our economy, our jobs, even national security, and how a climate climate change affects those. And therefore why, no matter who we are and where we live, we're already the perfect person to care because it affects the things that we already care about today. Now, when you started studying climate science, uh, was it your intention to become a world-renowned uh, climate change expert? Or did you, <laughs> <laughs> because you are, um, <laughs> I mean, you're you're not, you're the author of the most recent like intergalactic survey on <laughs> climate change from the UN or something, right? Um, yeah, so I'm actually the author of the U.S. National Climate Assessment that That's was released by, by the Trump administration this past Thanksgiving, uh, and uh, I I never really set out to to you know be known for what I do, but he, here's why I do what I do. And the interesting thing is that the reason I do what I do is because I'm a Christian, not, mm. not despite it. Yeah. So um, growing up, my dad was a science teacher as well as a teacher in our local church. And he just loved astronomy. I mean, one of my first memories is him taking me out to the park at, you know, it seemed to me it was like two in the morning. It was probably like 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and, you know, lying, lying on your back, showing me how to find the galaxy Andromeda through binoculars. That's cool. And the fact that you can just see another galaxy from our planet. And he he had slideshows he would take around to churches and camps of what he called God's art gallery, you know, the nebula and the, and the global clusters and the, um, the galaxies, the amazing things that God has made out in the universe that we never saw until we built telescopes to see them. So I was well on my way to studying astrophysics in university because I figured, you know, what more amazing thing can I do than spending my life studying and observing God's art gallery? Mm-hmm. Um, but I needed one more class to take before I finished my degree. So I was looking around and I'd already finished a minor in Spanish because my parents were missionaries actually in South America. So oh, wow. I grew up Spanish. Yep. Um, and I, I saw this class on climate science. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why don't I take it? So I took it and I was completely shocked because for one thing, I didn't realize climate science was the exact same astrophysics that I'd been learning. I don't know what I thought it was. <laughs> but I, I um, the, other, the other thing I didn't realize, though, is I thought climate change was just another one of those environmental issues that environmentalists and tree huggers care about. And, you know, I wish them well and I hope they fix these things one day. I didn't realize that it was a threat multiplier. 
I didn't realize that it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people. The very people who, you know, growing up, I had friends who lived in homes made of bamboo or cardboard boxes. When a disaster strikes in a poor country, you know, it isn't tens of people who are impacted by it. It's tens of thousands of people who are impacted, who lose their homes, their livelihoods, and even their lives. And so I, I felt to myself, I mean, I really felt a I don't think it's too strong to say it was a call to mm. say, here, here you are. You serendipitously have the exact skill set you need to study this issue. And how, how could I not spend my time studying this tremendous global issue that affects the poorest among us with the skills and the abilities that God had given me? And so that's why I became a climate scientist to, in, in any way I could, give a voice to the people who don't have a voice in this world, where the richest people in the world hold the balance of power and hold the megaphones in the world, um, to give them a voice to try to share their story with those of us who, who have the ears to hear and who have the heart that God's given us to care um, about the suffering that they're already enduring today and the suffering that's coming for us if we don't heed the warning. So you, uh, you have a YouTube series called Global Weirding. You are mm-hmm. on Twitter. What's your handle on Twitter? I am. It is K, my initial K, and then H-A-Y-H-O-E. I'm also on Facebook, Catherine Hayhoe, on Instagram, and I have a website where I've archived a lot of my articles and interviews, and I will archive this podcast as well. Awesome. Um, so if people are interested in, in hearing or reading more of what I've done, my website's just my name, katherinehayhoe.com. And if you're listening, I would really encourage you, I don't do this really often, but I would really encourage you to share this particular episode when it drops, uh, because it's a conversation starter, and there will be a lot of people around you uh, for whom a lot of this information will be either brand new or it will be presented from a framework that they recognize and it might give them an opportunity to think through some of these issues in a better and a different way. Dr. Catherine Hayho, thank you for being with me on Uncommentary today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and make a one-time gift there or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want starting at about two bucks and that would be greatly appreciated as well until the next time so gloria